Capitalistic democracy has disenfranchised the have-nots of the society. Whether or not you have a big government or small, if you don't change the root of the problem, social inequality will continue. Is a solution to seek more freedom away from the government or change the government? In the second part of the episode, Jim Mosquera roots for the more individual freedom over government involvement. I personally think changing the government, even though it requires more effort and systematic thinking, is a final way. What do you think? Future Design Podcast. Just before we start, I have an announcement I'd like to make. I've started a newsletter, a weekly one for each episode, which gives a summary of what you would expect to hear on the show. The other one is a monthly newsletter, which has actionable takeaways from the last four episodes, some of the research materials and books I read to prepare for the episodes, and lastly, my show notes that has my opinion on the specific topics from the episodes. If you would like to receive this letter, please visit fdpod.co and subscribe. That's fdpod.co. I hope you find value in them. Yeah, having a a, a uh, currency hegemony against others. I, I I also agree that it doesn't really make sense because everybody is going to be reliant on the U.S. monetary policies, whether what they're going to do, or how they're going to deflate it, how they're going to inflate it, and everybody has to think about the exchanges all the time. So if you have a different monetary base or a different currency that the people can base it on, and it's very dependent on how they run their own country or the monetary system, then I think it creates a lot more stability and also dis- financial discipline uh, in each of those countries because they're reliant on comparison between that base currency that they've internationally created. And, but in, in terms of like the use of cryptocurrency in our kind of everyday lives, you know, to me, you know, you talked about the central um, central bank digital currency, which I think is completely scary as hell. Because, you know, like a country like, you know, which one you said is that, you know, they can have completely control over your financial freedom. They can take away money if they want to because they don't like that you jaywalked or, you know, you watch some porn site or whatever it is. And and at the same time, you know, we have the decentralized cryptocurrencies that are based on completely free, uh, unpolitical um, biased currencies that has nothing to do with monetary policies, which I think that which is an, an amazing creation that we can all use on a, or even for me, and nowadays it seems like crypto or Bitcoin in particular is all about preserving wealth. It's not about spending. It's not e-cash that it came, uh, that it began, began with. It is more about, you know, people comparing that with gold and using that as a uh, preservation of wealth. And it could be other cryptocurrency that will come out of uh, this whole industry. But I think that the use of cryptocurrency is also very interesting because it's it's not really tied to anything, and uh, we're all going to be free from any political uh, political and monetary disasters that potentially com- com- countries can create. Uh, but in terms of like the market adoption of cryptocurrency, still is very very uh, infant in its infant stage. And I've seen I've talked to a couple people who are doing like meetups and trying to promote cryptocurrencies in the world, but you know th- there's always been this kind of idea that it's it's shady there's a lot of um you know black money going through that uh system so you know what what do you think it would take for actually a cryptocurrency to be well adopted in this market 
Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because uh, that's sometimes the connotations that people associate with Bitcoin initially, right? It's like, well, it's used by gangsters and, you know, there was the Silk Road site and, you know, there was porn there and et cetera. You know, and one of the things I tell people is that, you know, um, currencies like the dollar are also used for, you know, for similar purposes. I mean, and it's true. And, you know, originally I'm from the country of Panama. You know, I'm, a, I'm an immigrant to the United States. Well, you, I don't know if you ever heard of the Panama Papers. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, so it, it, to, 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 to single out Bitcoin as some sort of a safe harbor, you know, for criminality, I mean, it, be careful where you throw those stones because they can easily be pointed back. But in answer to your question, um, I, I wrote a couple of articles in, in 2017 about Bitcoin because I was concerned about the speculative fervor that was being attached to it. And it was it, it really was uh, commensurate with what I saw in that omni bubble thing that we were talking about earlier. But one of the things I think uh, or maybe the central thing that I think will help the adoption um, and, and you're obviously working in the industry is to create a user interface you know, for the average person that is very, very easy to use. And whether that's, you know, the person that on the, on the retail end, uh, not just from the, the, the owner of a business, but you know, even the consumer, right? Um, right now, I mean, if you think about what it takes to actually conduct a, a Bitcoin transaction to purchase something, you know, um, if you have a hardware wallet, uh, again, I don't know that, you know, that if I just go to one of my neighbors and say, hey, here's a hardware wallet, I'm going to put some Bitcoin on it, they go ahead and spend it on, you know, Takatoshi's website where he's selling something, right? I mean, that's not a slam dunk, right? Uh, it is a slam dunk for me to go to Takatoshi's website and pull my credit card out, you know, I put my number in, expiration date, and my CBC, and, you know, I can make that transaction. We're not there yet, Right. So we need to get to the point where, you know, user interfaces, hardware wallets, uh, all of those things are much, much easier to use, right? I agree with you 100%. Right now, Bitcoin is serving as a, uh, a potential store of value for people that are obviously understandably nervous about what's going on in the world financial system. Um, and it's probably not used transactionally. I mean, I don't know if you have, I actually, I've used Bitcoin very, very few times from a transactional perspective where I'm, you know, buying something, right? Um, I've never earned a Bitcoin, you know, as an author or, you know, a consultant or what have you. I've got a, uh, I've got a site that, um, that I put my books on that people can, you know, pay me in Bitcoin or even Ethereum or Litecoin, I think, as well, you know. But, you know, those sites, they don't necessarily get that much traction. In fact, they don't really get any traction at all. So the, the, the acceleration, the adoption has to be through, you know, the creation of a user interface. You know, we've got to make it easier for people to use. And, you know, the, the one thing that, um, and it's interesting because, you know, my career was spent a lot in telecommunications technology, networking related technologies. And it's really interesting to see the parallel between how the internet grew, because I got involved in what I'll call the early stages of the internet in the mid 90s. And, you know, what's, what's happened with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, it's very, very similar in the standpoint, you know, you know I tell people that, you know, the internet is a beautiful thing because it's decentralized, you know, nobody runs it, right? Now, governments can try to circumvent, you know, some of the, uh, the, the architecture that's there, right? And in certain countries, you know, you can't access certain websites, you know, we, we know that. Um, but organically, you know, the internet is, you know, decentralized, it's permissionless, right? Anybody can connect to it, it's decentralized. Uh, I don't care, you know, how my transmission right now, who I'm connecting to, to get, you know, all the way to Singapore, right? And 
Bitcoin really has a lot of those same uh, qualities about it. So we, we know that architecturally, the internet has been incredibly successful, right? And there's no reason why Bitcoin can't be the same thing because, you know, Bitcoin essentially is, um, you know, money for the internet, right? It's, 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 that, it's that medium of exchange, that transaction mechanism that's really optimized, you know, for the internet. And again, it's not necessarily the purview of Bitcoin. There can be other, uh, you know, cryptocurrencies that can function just as well, I'm sure, in the future, right? But until we get to the point where, you know, um, you know, maybe I can hand my neighbor or my mom, like, hey, here, mom, go buy this. And, you know, I, I give her something, maybe some sort of easy user interface on a computer. You know, we're not there yet, right? For it to be, again, that transactional mechanism. Because eventually, you know, that's what Satoshi Nakamoto's vision was, right? We wanted to make this a medium of exchange, right? And to really act as money. And that's really what it is. It's, it's not there yet. But it's definitely gotten a lot of attention because it is a store of value. You know, there's a limited supply, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of people, you know, when, when they talk about Bitcoin and, and well, they're advocating Bitcoin, they're more, they're coming out from a more libertarian or Austrian economic school of thought. And you've talked quite a lot about reducing the government's role in society, uh, whether, you know, in the financial system or in a, in a, in a more bureaucratic system as well. I mean, are, do you, do, are you also like an advocate for, you know, a, a more libertarian society? Well, um, in the United States, when the United States was born as a country, um, my, my country, I'm from Panama originally, my country was born in, you know, 1914, right? Again, it's independence. Uh, Singapore, 1965, I believe, right? Getting independence from the United Kingdom. Uh, so Singapore is a very young country. Uh, Panama is a pretty young country. Uh, United States born 1776. And when the country was architected, uh, I, in, in the book that you see behind me, you know, I, I create a, a, a political spectrum, so to speak, where on one side you have anarchy, you know, nobody's in charge of anything. And the other side you have, you know, what I'll call the isms, communism, fascism, socialism, where you have a, you know, a much greater government uh, uh, participation in the economy and, and, and really in people's lives. When we first started this country, we were much closer to that anarchic, you know, part of the spectrum. We weren't anarchic, obviously, but there was a lot more, um, uh, you know, to use the word liber liberal today means something completely different than when, you know, uh, in the seven, late 1700s, United States, you know, Europe and so forth. And my, it strikes me that, you know, over the course of time, at least in the United States, you know, we've, we've drifted over towards... That, those isms that we talked about. And that happens for two reasons. One, you know, we live in a representative democracy, so our representatives are supposed to represent our views. If we ask for more, they're going to try to give us more. Um, and, you know, we don't have any financial friction that prevents that from happening, right? Well, if we run a budget deficit, who cares, right? The government spends more money. There's a, a willing cadre of buyers there that will buy our debt. And if they don't buy it, well, then by golly, the, the, the central bank in the United States may buy it, or maybe the Bank of Japan, you know, maybe, you know, the Bank of Switzerland, whoever it is, right? The central banking uh, organization, the, the, the organism of central banking can suck all that extra liquidity up, right? And so there's no friction to any of that. So what happens is I, I've, I've created a phrase, I call it, you know, freedom of versus freedom from, do you know the difference, you know? And we've, we've slowly over time, we've asked for more of those freedoms from something. You know, I want to make sure that I, I'm free from, you know, um, from indigency in, in old age. I don't want to be poor. I want to be free from uh, ill health. 
uh, in the United States, we have a, an incredibly complicated tax code that is just, you know, just incredibly large. And really, that's an instrument of people that want to use the government for some personal benefit, you know, for a company, corporation, organization, what have you. And when you do that, you know, you, you create larger government. And I'm not saying that larger government is wrong per se, but when you have larger government, it creates more complicated, it makes life much more complicated. It centralizes things more. And then you run into more of that. You were talking about it earlier about, um, you know, people want, you know, their part of the pie, right? And if they don't have a powerful lobbyist in Washington, D.C. Or, or any other, you know, na national capital, there's nobody necessarily speaking for them, you know, financially. And, and that's the problem that you've had is that, you know, we've had so much largesse, but it hasn't gone, you know, uniformly across the spectrum. And then you have, you end up with social problems, you know, wealth inequality, and income inequality. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's something that, and we're we're starting to see that kind of come to a head more, especially in the United States, when you when you see a lot more protests. But you see them in France as well, right? You see the green vests in France, uh, Hong Kong, a little bit different manifestation, you know. But you know, uh, society is very very restless right now, right? Very very restless, and you know, it's hard to have healthy economies when you have restless societies, right? And the people that are restless, you know, will you know ma manifest that in different ways. Um, you know, you see the rise of, of nationalism in different countries, and you talked about that earlier. Um, it, it's very difficult, I think, to all of a sudden say, well, we're going to decouple all countries from world trade, right? That's not, eventually that's not efficient. But what's happening right now is people are saying, well, you know, our supply chains are inextricably tied to China. And, you know, we're having political issues with China, so maybe we shouldn't have our supply chains there. And we've had this pandemic. And so one of the things that I write about is that you know, during uh, during certain times, you know, you have a, a feelings of um, of cooperation, of happiness, and you'll see that expressed, you know, through treaties. Uh, you know, the European Union, right? That ha happened at a certain point in time. Well, what's happened in the European Union here most recently? You had Brexit, right? You've had other companies, and so you have this kind of fracturing that's going on, right? Um, and I, I think you're, I, I know you're going to see more and more of that. You're going to see more countries, you know, retrenching. But at, at, you know, at the end of that crisis, and again, however long it takes, you know, you'll see everything come back together again. But there has to be something to bring it back together, right? And there has to be some sense, uh, my my opinion, of financial and economic equality for that to occur, right? In order to kind of bring back those, you know, those good feelings again. It seems like we're pretty much in a very difficult spot where, you know, there's no real move from any of the government to decide what they want to do. I mean, you know, one, one side is going very nationalist and, and the other side saying, oh, we've got to be more liberal and accepting of all different cultures and, and, and sizes of economy and we have to bring it all, all together. So, you know, it just seems like, you know, we're kind of like already in a, you know, in, in a, a tangled nut already. And you know, not 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 necessarily finding a, a solution for it. Whether you you enlarge governments, you make it smaller. It doesn't seem to really fix the problem. And and as you said, people are looking for freedom from, which means that people over the years since the founding of the U.S. seems like people are looking for the government to do more stuff for them, and they're just slowly giving away their liberty. And now people want not e equality of opportunities, but they want equal results and that that leads to more enlarged governments and and so 
you know, in our mindset, I mean, is it, is it that we have to start thinking about how could we be more independent from governments? How can we be more independent from all the catastrophes that are happening and try to save ourselves in some way that we can be financially free, we can be politically free? Or is it, is it some, some other idea that you can come up with? I, I think, I think that's, that's my answer. Right. I, I think eventually you have to move for that, because if you think about, you know, if, if there's this big piece of pie. Right. And there's only some people that can dip their 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 fork into that pie and, and take some of that pie. But, you know, some people are restricted from going into that pie. It, it creates a lot of feelings of resentment. Right. And so the issue is, how do we get um, more people to kind of bake their own pies? Right. Uh, and, and that comes, I think, through uh, individual liberty, individual freedom. And I'm glad you mentioned that because that right there is the, is the central theme of my fictional series, is that you, you see this, and, and it's set just a few years into the future, where you see this tug between authoritarianism and liberty. And, you know, people that want that authoritarian, right? I mean, there's people in, in, in certainly the United States and I'm sure other parts of the world as well, they want the authority because they, they want to have some sense that, you know, um, that there's, there's some entity there. And the only entity that can do that is a central government, right? I want them to be able to do the following things for me, okay? Well, when that happens, it costs to do that, right? Because government doesn't exist on its own, right? And not only costs to do that, but you also are giving something up. And I think that's one thing that, that is, is lost, I think, in a lot of analyses is that the more you ask them to do, the more freedom you have to give up, you know, on your own. And the more freedom that you give up, then that means that you're going to be subject to potentially, you know, an arbitrary set of rules that, you know, may disadvantage you one time, maybe the next time it creates advantages for you, right? Maybe nine out of 10 times it disadvantages you because the, some segment of the population has spoken more vociferously about, you know, some benefit that they want. And that's something that's really, really missing in a lot of these analyses is that nobody really thinks about that. And that's something I've, I've spent, you know, as you can tell, some time kind of thinking about that. And if you want to solve some of these problems, I mean, that's what you have to get to, I think. Um, getting to that point is going to be very difficult, right? And as I mentioned earlier, we're, we, I, I really believe that you, we will have to pass through a crisis. And I'm not, I'm not talking about COVID right now. I'm talking about something, you know, grander, you know, a, a, a monetary type crisis to kind of create that awakening. Now, what happens on the other side of that? I mean, I, I don't know, right? I don't have the crystal ball. I don't know my vision would be to see, you know, something where, you know, people can express their own freedom and liberty. Um, you still absolutely, I mean, there's a lot of people that, you know, that call themselves libertarian and they don't want to see any form of government whatsoever. I mean, I, there's some, some, I won't mention any names. There's a couple of people that, uh, are, are wealthy investors and they're very, very libertarian. I mean, they, they see no use for government whatsoever. Everything can be privatized. I don't believe that, you know? And the reason I don't believe that is because, you know, in many governments, um, in the United States particularly, uh, for many, many years, maybe a century, you could say that it worked very well having a central government. It wasn't as powerful as it is right now, you know? Um, tax burdens were a lot less, right? There was less expected of the government. But my gosh, the, the country grew uh, substantially well. Um, and again, the country where you're uh, residing now, I mean, that's got to be a, a seminal example of, you know, how to grow a country into an international powerhouse. I mean, a country that's, you know, 
280 square, 300 square miles. I mean, that, that's like a metropolitan area, you know, in, in many cities in the United States. I mean, and yet you have, you know, this flourishing economy. Now, maybe everyone doesn't agree with, you know, the model of government that the way Singapore has, but it has to be used as an example of how an economy can flourish, you know, can go from zero to, to here, right? Very, very, you know, quick and, and, and within a generation, basically, right? Or generation and a half. Um, but I, unfortunately, I, I think we have to pass through crises. I mean, that's what's historically shown that, you know, you pass through these crises, you know, to, to use a term from an author that I read, um, uh, Neil Howe, you know, you, you go through this turning, right? You go through this, what's called a fourth turning. And so you, you kind of turn society over and you have different people in that society that uh, have lived through certain things. They, they know how to, uh, you know, carry the society into that next, you know, turn. Uh, you know, we've, and we've had that before. And, and I believe in cycles, I, I, you know, we're going to go through another cycle. There'll be something better on the other side of it. Um, I'm a very big believer in technology, solving a lot of problems that, you know, we're, some of the problems that we're talking about today, right, potentially can be solved technologically in the future. I mean, nanotechnology has unbelievable, right, capability, you know, potential to it. You know, I'm very, very hopeful about blockchains. I'm hopeful about, you know, uh, the monetary capability of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, you know, biotechnology. There's a lot of things that are there, right? But uh, we're not going to get there, like, you know, linearly, right? You know, you, you may see a little bit of a, you know, kind of an upward sine wave, you know, on the way there. Yeah, I always, um, I read a book from Jeremy Rifkin about zero marginal economy or zero marginal cost, where because of all these technological improvements, then a lot of the cost for things, um, production value, or even the uh, goods and services that you can get is going to be near zero. So then technology is going to solve itself, the inequalities of life, because you don't have to spend that much for anything anymore. And then the governments can slowly just step away from governing the whole economy. And, you know, that's the kind of utopia, I guess, that they, they was talking about. But, you know, definitely. Well, it's, 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 it's something called time prices, too. It's like if you think about, like, you know, um, 50 years ago, you know, what, how many hours would it take of labor for an average worker to buy a television as an example, right? You know, and if you compare that, you know, 50 years ago, 1970 to 2020, well, I mean, it, it takes a fraction of the amount of time, right? So to your point, you know, that's what technology can do. It can reduce that time price, you know, value. Yeah. I guess we could talk over and over about this stuff. I, I really enjoy talking to you, um, Jim. So, um, you know, we definitely want to know more about you and, and could you tell us your upcoming book and all the other books that you've written because, you know, it does give us a, 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 a glimpse of what the future might look like. Yeah, the, um, the book behind me right now, Escaping Oz on Observer's Reflections, that's the third in a, in a, in a nonfiction series. They all have the title Escaping Oz and then a different subtitle. Again, those are nonfiction. Um, it kind of takes you through a little bit of monetary, not this book, but the previous ones kind of take you a little bit of monetary history, you know, what the next uh, economic downturn will look like, uh, which we're kind of seeing right now, uh, maybe what financial assets to avoid, you know, what safe things to, to do. Um, this book behind me kind of talks a little bit more about that freedom of and freedom from and, you know, what happens when you ask government to do too much, you know, what are some of the consequences of it? You know, politically, economically, socially, and so forth. Um, I'm really excited about my fictional series. It's four books now. Um, it uses a, uh, a journalist as the protagonist. Uh, the first book is called 2020, and it's based on the U.S. presidential election of this year, 2020. And uh, there's something that occurs in that book, uh, a bombshell event, 
that then sets the stage for the for the remaining three books in the series, something that the president does. And um, what you'll see in that series is you'll see uh, it, there, it's a thriller series that encompasses politics, financial crisis, cyber terror, uh, some kinetic terror, um, secession, secession movements, uh, cryptocurrencies are involved. Little love story, right? You got to kind of kind of make it entertaining. You got a little love story in there, um, and there's mentorship. There are cyber characters that appear primarily, you know, in cyberspace um, because that's kind of like the next battlefield, if you will, potentially uh, in the United States, anyway. Uh, and this is something that it kind of blows my mind. Some of these things that I've written about it have kind of like come to fruition. Um, I think you're going to see more of an impact. Um, of domestic national security on, you know, maintaining law and order. Like in the United States, you've seen right now, we've had, you know, protests against police forces. And, you know, now you see policemen retiring, quitting, et cetera. So it leaves that gap there. And so one of my visions <laughs> for the fictional series is that you'll see now the federal government then responds, like, okay, we need to maintain law and order. So here's how we're going to do that. And, uh, you know, in the United States, you have a law that prohibits the U.S. military, you know, from being involved in local policing. Um, only under very, very specific conditions. So, you know, my thought is, okay, well, here's what's going to happen is you're going to militarize some segments of the federal government that are not, you know, the military, right? So they'll have this, you know, great capability. Um, you'll see a lot of more uh, spying and surveillance. You'll see that, you know, within the context of my books too. So I, I think it's a series from, you know, the reaction that I got from readers on my fictional series is that it makes them really think about what's going on right now. Uh, one or two of the books scare the hell out of them, you know, because of, you know, some of the things that happen. And I, you know, I tell people, if, you know, if you're kind of scared and you're kind of bothered by some of the things that you read about, then, you know, mission accomplished, because I, I, I do want to kind of create that awareness of, you know, what could happen potentially. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jim. And uh, hopefully we can do another one of these, maybe after the COVID situation's over, and then we can re-examine what's, what's going on in the world. Probably not much different, but, you know, it'll be interesting to see uh, what your views are in the world after that. So thank Yeah, you so absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it again. Yeah, thank awesome. you. All right. Thank you very much. Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. If you had enjoyed or disliked the show, please let me know in the comments section. I can only improve or add value to you through your voices. If there are any topics that you'd like me to pick up, please let me know in the comments section as well. I'd love to start chatting with you. And if you'd like to continue listening to the show, please subscribe. Thank you.